Well, what a great honor and privilege. Let's just say thank you to Dr. Issa McCauley again for being with us and his wife, Mandy. Such a great honor. So this is an opportunity. I have uh, just said, look, could you stay with us for a bit before he flies out this afternoon back to Chicago so we can just get to know you a bit and ask any questions. And so what's gonna happen is I'm gonna ask questions and then uh, we'll also leave space at the end if you have any questions yourself that you'd like to ask. Um, but why don't we pray before we get going? Lord, we thank you for this amazing food, for those who prepared it for us and served it for us. And we bless, we thank you for uh, Esau and Mandy for being with us today. And they bless their kids at home uh, as they're being cared for without their parents. And Lord, bless our time now that we might go deeper into your heart and your kingdom for this nation at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Esau, a real honor to have you. Thank you for having me. Oh, that's Hi. loud. <laughs> tell, us, just tell us a bit about yourself and your family that we can just get to know you a bit. Um, my name is Esau McCauley. Uh, I teach the New Testament at Wheaton College. Um, I've written a couple... Oh, thank you. <laughs> you have a low bar for clapping here. I like that. <laughs> Uh, I teach, I said that part, I've written a couple of books, um, Reading While Black, I wrote a book on Lent, a book about, um, a children's book called Josie Johnson's Hair and the Holy Spirit, and a book coming out this November, um, there's a bit of a memoir called How Far to the Promised Land, and I'm looking forward to that, you all reading that, and I'm married to a wonderful woman who's around here somewhere, and we have four amazing children, and I, I really, really like God, I think that's kind of important, and... Oh, I also, um, I write for the New York Times. I write a column now about once every three weeks um, on culture, religion, and society. The last few years have been incredibly challenging. I know, before we get into some of the macro issues, you've also, you told me a bit uh, backstage there that you guys had a bit, bit of an adventure in 2020. Yeah. Um, just tell us a bit about that and also what Mandy was up to yeah. in COVID. My wife's a, a Navy reservist. She's the pediatrician for the, for, um, the United States Navy. And during the um, height of the pandemic, she was called to active duty and she deployed for eight and a half months. Um, and so she was gone and it was me and the four kids. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so that was, that was a, a difficult season. It was actually right after, she deployed a month before uh, my book, Reading My Black, came out. And so it was kind of, a, it made a bit of an impact. And so dealing with all of that, with having our family split apart was a little bit tricky, but God was faithful. And it taught me a, a, some important lessons about life. Kids tend to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Suffering tends to do that. <laughs> what, what, what I say to people is, because um, I, started, I started doing some more writing around that time, is that you just learn um, what's really valuable. You know, I, I, I said a lot, you can't hug success. You can't like talk to it, it doesn't love you back, it just sits there. And the closer you get to it, the more it evaporates and you begin to see how meaningless it is. And so experiencing a little bit of success while my family is split apart, reminded me of what actually is important, and that's the people who you love. Mm. Um, and, and treating them well and honorably are kind of what constitutes a good life. Mm. And whatever, what everybody else tells you is a good life, and what they may or may not want isn't what God says. And mm. so that's one of the things that um, that season taught me. 
So at that time, your book, Reading While Black, was published. Mm-hmm. Um, it's won awards and won many uh, people's uh, acclaim, particularly in this season. Yeah. Just tell folks a bit about kind of the thesis of that book, and then yeah. we'll, we'll dig into it a bit. So uh, the best way of talking about it was back in 2016, 2017, if you all remember, well, 2015 and 2016, um, there was when one of the waves of Black Lives Matter protests were happening, and I remember seeing this person who was interviewed, and she said, this is not your parents' civil rights movement. We're going to do things differently. And I understood what she was saying. She was saying that what the church was doing wasn't relevant, and so they were going to do things differently. And I'm from the South. I'm from Alabama. And I grew up in the shadow of the civil rights movement. And for us, it was our faith that led African-Americans in the South to resist segregation and anti-black racism. And I thought, no, 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 like Christianity has something to say about the pressing issues of the day. And so in the book, I was trying to show how African-American Christians read the Bible in such a way that they saw in biblical text the God who was a friend, not an enemy to issues of justice and ethnicity. And that the Bible, um, as written, could help us um, in those things, such that, like I said, justice and righteousness could be friends, not enemies. The tradition of the Afri- African American church has strongly been in- in- integrating biblical faithfulness yeah. with justice, which yeah. in some of the movements of the early 20th century seemed to split them apart. Yeah. And the un- often overlooked community of holding them together almost yeah. prophetically. Yeah. has been the Af- African-American community. Tell us a bit more about that and how important that is right now. So I think that, I wish that we, if you invite me for a lecture, I would have given you a lecture about it, so I gotta be as brief as I possibly can. Um, a long, long story made short, and I'll even talk about Britain in this. This will be great for you. <laughs> um, we have a bit of a checkered history. Okay. <laughs> Don't worry, this is the good bit. <laughs> I know, I know the bad bits, but you get a, the good bit. That in, in the United States, um, around the turn of the 20th century, there was the fundamentalist modernist debate. And basically it was a fight, fight largely in majority white churches where one group of white Christians said what really matters are social issues. And then the other group of white Christians said what really matters is the authority of scripture and the Bible and salvation. And they kind of, one group went this way, the other group went that way. And that debate keep playing, has played itself out over and over again for the next 120 years. Well, what people weren't realizing is that, well, that then in majority white space churches, generally speaking, if you care about poor people and justice, people get suspicious about you theologically. And if you tend to have traditional theology, you tend to be suspicious of justice issues because you think it leads to liberalism. That's just the natural instinct of most majority culture white churches. But what I would say to people, what happens if you, instead of centering your focus on how white churches, majority white churches develop that, you look at what happened in the black church. One of the black church, the first question you had to ask when you're converted in 1850 is, what does God think about the laws of this land vis-a-vis slavery? And if you're a black Christian, you say, well, maybe God doesn't want me to be a slave. And so from that moment, your faith was inevitably going to be political because you have to ask a political and theological question at the starting point, not later, at the starting point. But those same people who said God wants us to be free also said God forgave me for my sins. 
And so justice and personal transformation were part of the same, like they, they existed together. And so when I was growing up, it was not at all uncommon to repent of your sins and march for justice. Those things were like normal. And so it wasn't until I got into majority culture churches and I was like, why do people get mad at me when I talk about poverty and injustice? Like I didn't understand it. And so that was, that's what led me to um, kind of getting into how we read the Bible differently. The interesting thing about this in the UK, and here's the part where the UK gets this, this positive part. This actually isn't true of British evangelicalism. If you look at evangelicalism in the United Kingdom, they were actually some of the ones, people like John Stott, were the people who contended for the importance of both justice and biblical fidelity. So that's actually not, it's, in other words, it's not native to all forms of evangelicalism, it's particularly American, it's not the same in the UK. And it's actually not even the same in Australia, which has a different history, it's not the same in Africa. And so this, this division between um, justice, and it's not even the same in South America. It's actually uniquely American, um, European form of evangelicalism that does this. And so it's not just do you know how African Americans read the Bible, but it's other people. I know this is, this is the nerdy part, but I'm going to take two minutes to say it. Here's a little fact that you all didn't know. So they had this thing called the Luzanne Missionary Conference. You ever heard of this here? So, okay, okay, Luzanne, okay. So long story short, it's the, it's the biggest missionary organization in the world whose goal is global evangel evangelism. And when they was putting together this thing called the Luzanne Covenant, which would be the guiding principles that's gonna decide what global evangelism is gonna look like, there was a debate. And the debate was between Billy Graham and John Stott. And Billy Graham, this is true, this is true. You should understand what happened in America. Billy Graham wanted to take out or remove the discussion of social action from the Luzanne Conference representing America. The Americans said, get all the social stuff out of there. That's a distraction from the gospel. And it was actually the Brits and John Stott who says, no, it's going in there. And if you look at the Luzanne Conference now, which is a global statement on like the kind of the largest um, organization representing global evangelism, they have in their statement a, a word on not just the conversion of people, but also social action. And so what the black church actually is, is a normal form of traditional Christianity that exists in most parts of the world, but is seen as controversial in America. You didn't think the UK was going to get a little bit of love hey, there. No, I mean, no. I, I, got, really? I, got, I got my St. Andrew's um, sweater. Brother, that's Scotland's. Yeah, I know. So, oh, trust me. <laughs> Here's the thing. I was, I was in Scotland once, and it was, I think it was during the World Cup or something, and I was asking the guy, um, who are you rooting for? Because I thought he's like, whoever England is playing, I'm rooting for them. I was like, wow. <laughs> Y'all need to talk this through. Scotland and England. Y'all need to really. Anyways. You've seen Braveheart, right? Yes, I've seen it. <laughs> That was a while back. <laughs> <laughs> so, talking about the black church and uh, that prophetic voice of bringing together the gospel with justice, but also the ravaging of racial injustice over, over, over the years, and particularly during COVID, all that happened. Um, tell me, first of all, what prophetic voice is the black church what can they teach the wider church in America? Yeah. So one of the things that um, I deal with with my students is, and you can kind of hear some of it if you're, in the, if you're in church today, is this feeling of disillusionment. Is they grew up 
um, thinking that they were the good guys. And that their children, I mean, that, that all of the, like, the evangelicals were the ones who came in and saved the day. And it's really hard for them to see people fall or the church reveal this hypocrisy. And they have this idea, well, I thought the church was this, like, glowing thing, and now I see many of our leaders are corrupt, and they have spiritual crises. They don't know how to be Christians. And one of the things that I say um, about that is one of the things about the black church is we have the advantage of never having believed the propaganda. I mean, I mean, you just imagine, imagine for a second, it's like 1865 or 18, at any point. We didn't have this kind of pristine image of the United States that was then burst five to seven years ago. Like, I mean, Frederick Douglass wrote, you know, 100, what to the slave of the 4th of July? And in, in, in that letter, Frederick Douglass is saying, how can you celebrate 4th of July independence while you're enslaving people? Or like the, the I Have a Dream speech, which is known for the second half. The first half of it is, he actually says, we came to, we came to Washington, D.C. to cast a check. That the promises that was given to us of all people being traded equal and was come back with insufficient funds. And so even MLK said that the American dream is a myth in the sense of being this land of opportunities, segregation, Jim Crow, all of these things. And so we have learned how to be Christians while being deeply disappointed in other Christians for our entire history. <laughs> it's true, it's true. And so for people who are wondering, can I be a Christian when I see corruption around me? The answer to that question is yes. Um, and I think the issue, so if, if you wanna think about um, modern kind of Protestantism has as its origin point kind of the Reformation. And like justification and how one is saved is a central pressing issue that drives why we fight about justification over and over again. Justification is super important. I'm not going to say it's not important. But that's actually not the origin. Like the driving theological question of the black church is actually theodicy, the problem of evil. So from the beginning of our wrestling with God in America, it's like, how do I be a Christian when so many Christians around me are so wicked? Mm. And so the odyssey, this, this question of how do I be a Christian nonetheless, is straw, it's like shot through like the black church's music, it's in our preaching, it's in our prophetic voice. And so we have shown that it's possible to be a Christian while being disappointed with other Christians. And it's also possible to be a Christian without power. Um, one of the things that, that um, I didn't realize until I started hanging out in majority culture churches is how much they're defined by fear. Yeah. And how they're saying this election is the most important election of our lifetime and if we don't win this one, the whole thing's gonna fall apart. That's like, well, we couldn't vote for a long time. We were le legally denied the right to vote and we, we were able to bring about societal change anyway. And we never could have, we've never been the majority who could just vote our will. Like we're 30% of the population. We can, never, we can never just say, we all want this and then it's going to occur. And so we have to say, well, how, how can I be a Christian when I can't rely upon the support of the nation state to get my agenda across? And when that's the case, and this is like, I would say to them like, uh, you might, sometimes you have this thing in black preaching that I call like audacity, like I call it black audacity. We kind of say, I can't believe they said that. <laughs> and the reason they, we speak like that is because 
sometimes all we have is the truth. And so if all I have is the truth, I might as well say it how I feel it. And so you have to have these moments where the truth of what God is saying cuts through all of the noise and speaks with absolute clarity. And, and, and when, when you're managing 15 different competing agendas and, and, and you're saying, okay, how do I speak the truth in such a way that I keep this relationship and that relationship and this and that because I want to be able to do this later, the truth gets muddied. But when you don't have any of those relationships, you can just say it how you feel it. Uh, one of the things that's funny is because um, when I wrote Reading While Black, um, it was like I, I wrote it in a basement <laughs> of this of our um, uh, of our uh, the place where I was working, and it's in Rochester, New York. And so it was literally beneath the ground. And as the winter as the winter kind of go, it kept snowing, and eventually the one window was kind of covered. <laughs> and when I was writing it, no one knew who I was. Well, I could just say whatever I wanted. I've never been that free as a writer since then, because once people bought it, oh, people bought this and they read it. <laughs> but only they knew I wrote it in the basement, like when I by myself, and I was just saying whatever, what do I care? <laughs> and then a lot of people read it. I was like, oh, now I got to stand up what I wrote. <laughs> and now it's harder, right? Now, um, the more opportunity that you have, the more that you have, the more that you have to risk. Mm-hmm. And so now you're saying, well, can I be as honest now as I was then when now my honesty cost me something? And I try to remember all of the people who came before me who are honest at great cost. Mm. And it's not easy. Um, I'll never forget this one time um, I was preaching. This was before the book was written. And I grew up poor. I grew up, you know, um, kind of on the, on the rough side of Huntsville, Alabama. And I used to, like, like yell at rich people all of the time. And it was good. It's really good when you look, because, like, all the texts are, like, against the rich people in the Bible. I was like, get, and I was, one day I was preaching, I was like, wait a minute, I'm not broke anymore. These texts are about me. Oh, no. <laughs> right? I was like, I had this moment of crisis, right? Where now I have to say, it's not just easy for me to, to, to be the poor person that's pointing at other people. I'm saying, now that I have these resources, that indictment is upon me to be just as honest as I was. And so um, I think that if you want to look at like what the black church at its best, and it has its own problems, is radical honesty rooted in trusting God because we have no, we didn't have any other hope. Mm. Wow. So taking you back to 2020, the, pu- yeah. the, the book is published. Yeah. COVID. We've then got political turmoil. We've yeah. then got the murder of George Floyd. Yeah. And your voice was thrust into, in front of a microphone. Yeah. Because of your book and because of um, just your ministry. Just tell us a bit about that. And uh, what did that look like for you? Man, um, it was odd. Um, Probably is because, you know, this, sorry, you got me thinking of England. When I was, um, when I was doing my PhD, um, I was, me me and my wife went visiting different schools. And we went to Oxford, and we were in the Cotswolds. Sorry for all of you who to the UK. But in the Cotswolds, they have those old churches that go back centuries, and they're like 1,200, you know, they still worshiping. And I said, you know, I would love it if I could just be in an old church off in a village somewhere by myself, minding my own business, and I can preach the word of God faithfully there and just disappear and just like serve the kind of marry people, bury people, disciple people, and have like a really quiet life. That was my goal above all things. 
and I failed spectacularly. <laughs> um, and so um, I just don't, I guess I don't understand why anybody would want to do this in the sense of if you desire a platform or influence, it's mostly like people yelling at you on the internet. <laughs> uh, you don't get paid per angry tweet, so it's just like, <laughs> So it, it was, it was, it was um, not something that I sought after. What, what people don't understand is the book is, it's a book on hermeneutics. Like nobody buys hermeneutics books. I don't even buy hermeneutics books, right? And so I didn't plan on the book doing what it did. And so all of a sudden people were um, coming to me, asking me for stuff. And what, what I tried to say to myself was, um, um, you know what I want to do? I just want to get out of this whole thing with my integrity intact. I just want to like die, not die, I don't want to die, right? Like, but when I die, I just want this to be like Esau was flawed like any other human being, but I didn't bring scandal upon the church. Um, and so I was just praying to God, okay, all of this attention is, is coming my way. Help me not to embarrass the church of Jesus Christ and help me to remain a good husband and a good father. And if I get to the end of my life and saying those three things have occurred, my children, my wife, and the church, I've served them well, then I was good. Um, and that's kind of what I've tried to do, is to try to, as best as I can, under um, whatever scrutiny I have, to try to live with integrity, um, and try not to allow all of my pain or like the negative things, cruelty can make you cruel. And I didn't want to become cruel. Because I believe as a Christian, like none of our stories are over. As long as we draw breath, that's the chance that we can change. And that I wanted to write in such a way that gave the people possibility to change. Mm -hmm. That if you wanted to listen, you could hear, um, hopefully what, what God was communicating through whatever flawed words I was writing. And so I tried to say, you know, they are going to be more cruel. I'm going to try to be more loving. Um, and so those have been the things I tried to do. I tried to be as honest as I could and blunt as I could, um, mm -hmm. while at the same time leaving open the possibility that someone might change. And I've had people come up to me, it's a weird, I mean, I'm glad that they say it, but like, I used to be racist. And I was like, wow, like, you know, you helped change me. I was like, thank you, I'm glad, how, how formally racist are you? <laughs> where, where are we on this journey? Have you mostly made it? It's like an odd thing to say, right? I mean, I'm glad, like, I'm glad that you're formally racist, but like, the book came out in 2020, I just thought, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, and, and, and it's genuine, and, and it's like, it's, it's um, and I'm not, and, and, and I, take, I take those, those, um, those statements seriously, and not to refer to the sermon again, but what I try to do is not point people towards my wisdom, but towards God. Because no matter how, how much we try as ministers, we can't be Jesus for people. Because we're limited, we're broken, we make mistakes like everyone else. And so what can we do? We can say, despite the limitations that we have, we pointed it to the person without limitations. And so if people read the stuff that I write and they think, the God who shapes his life is worthy of my allegiance and I've succeeded. Mm -hmm. If they stop with thinking I wrote something good, then I didn't think, I don't think I accomplished my goal. So let's turn to some of those honest truths, those yeah. gospel truths that 
What did you feel God stirring in you to speak into the crisis that the American church has been facing over the last few years? I thought, I really thought the crisis was one of imagination. Um, I really genuinely believe that Christians sometimes struggle to imagine how they can embrace the entirety of what the Bible teaches. That might seem like to be a weird thing to say, but I don't think the, the issue is whether or not the Bible is clear about what we care about, whether or not we care about the oppressed. I think the Bible is clear on that. I don't think, there's actually not an argument that the Bible doesn't say you should care about poor people. Um, and I think that it is not a legitimate argument that the history of America doesn't reveal present and ongoing structural injustice. That just feels like these things that are this clear. But there is this fear that if we embrace these realities and put our energy into resisting them, that the church will somehow lose its way. And I felt like I was being called to say, do not be afraid. Because what happens is whenever you begin to talk about racism and injustice, the way that, that they, people maintain control is by calling you a bad Christian. And so that fear of you are going to be a bad Christian if you do these things keeps people in line. And I felt like I could say, don't be afraid. Here's a history of 250 years of people bringing these things together and here's the history, and we managed to still love God and love his word. And so if the black church has anything to say, it's like, do not be afraid. Um, and, and so I think that might, it, may seem, it may seem to be very simple, but that idea is that do not be afraid to care about that which God cares about and that you won't lose your spiritual way. And, and to show people, the other thing that I would say is, Precisely because people kept being told, if I care about these things, I'm a bad Christian. A lot of people decided, well, I'll just be a bad Christian. And they left the faith because they couldn't find a way to imagine being Christian and caring about these issues when the people they respected said that they couldn't do it. And some of the young people said, well, if this is what it means to be a Christian, then I just, I'll, I don't, I think that's a bad decision to make. But they were saying, I don't, well, I won't be a Christian. I said, well, no, no, no. Here's how you can be a Christian and care about these things in a way that integrates them into a balanced spirituality. And so what I was really trying to do was help people imagine a form of Christianity that brought together orthodoxy, right belief, and orthopraxy, right praxis. And so that's what I was hoping to do. And I think that, um, I hope that it bore some fruit, that it encouraged people that these two things can be linked together. But it's just, I, I wish that people like read, I know this is, Controversial, but I wish we read history. <laughs> because, and this is true, if you read, I just wish people would do this. People should just read what they said during the abolitionist debates. And they said, this seems to be about slavery and abolition, but this is actually about Christianity. And these abolitionists are really atheists who hate God. I said, wait a minute, during the abolitionist movement, they called the people who were abolitionists bad Christians. And I said, you fast forward to like the 1960s. He said, you know what? This seems to be a segregation. But really, King and all his other people are communists. Right? They said, it's Marx, not Jesus, who's running the civil rights movement. I said, wait a minute. So whenever African Americans have stood up to talk about justice from a position of faith, the response has been, these people are bad Christians. So there's a playbook. So maybe then the solution to that playbook is not to fall into the same thing that happened 
with the civil rights movement and the abolitionist movement, which is to say, well, I'm going to stay away from it. Because now, interestingly enough, when it no longer costs anything, everybody adopts the position of the abolitionist, even though it's the minority position. The, the Bible, broadly speaking, or the, not broadly speaking, the Bible read canonically points towards a God who wants freedom rather than slavery. And everybody reads the Bible like the abolitionist did. But at the time, that wasn't how anybody read the Bible except for the black church members of the abolitionist movement in white churches. But now we all read the Bible that way. During the 1950s and the 60s, they were saying, well, like, no, we should have segregation. And the black Christian like, no, you're reading the Bible wrong. The Imago Dei says this, that, the other. People go, no, you're atheist, you're communist. And now we all kind of go, yeah, they were right. So maybe you go to 2023, we've had two major fights, black church 2-0, we're doing pretty well. <laughs> maybe this time when we say, hey, there's issues of racism and structural injustice in society, the primary claim that's happening right now. There are structures in society that perpetuate injustice. Maybe people should listen to us because we, we have a long history of being faithful, not perfect, we have our problems like everyone else, but being faithful and bringing those things together. And so if, if what I'm doing is a part of that tradition, it's to stand up and say, no, 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 we're not bad Christians. We love Jesus, we love his word, and like tear down these structures of oppression. Yeah, amen. Two questions, you can do them in which okay. order. Um, how can we listen better? Yeah. And where do you see signs of hope? Oh, man. Um, I, think, I think this is the tricky part. The first one, I'll say it, the first one. Um, I don't think the problem is listening. I think it's really fear. I think that most pastors know the truth. Who, I mean, like some people don't, but like a lot of people know. <laughs> and I think they see it. I th in other words, but I think there is a fear. And what I say to people is, the moment that there's a truth that you're afraid to tell, you cease to be leading, you're just an opinion polar. You're just like at the mercy of like the whims of society. And one of the things that you can't foresee, it's impossible to see until it occurs, what God is preparing you for. So all that you can do is tell the truth as best as you experienced it. So if before you know, 2020 you knew that racism was bad, which was clear, and you started teaching and preaching and helping your congregation prepare for it, then you wouldn't have been caught off guard by 2020. But if it was for a variety of reasons that we, we didn't address, then we kind of caught off guard. And then you had to scramble to fix it, and God is merciful, he'll help us in our scrambling. But right now, I just say, like, it sounds very simple. Just preach the Bible and apply it. This is what I want to say. So most, most people understand that like sins reoccur. So we don't say, oh, I preached about marital faithfulness one time three years ago and the congregation knew it. No, I have to like re return to this. We all know that lying is bad, but we still lie. So you got to preach about honesty. I'm assuming that you preach about tithing more than once a year, right? Maybe. <laughs> In other words, like there's certain truths that although we know them, they reoccur, and we need to be consistently discipled in them, and that's the discipleship that's going to continue forever. Like, we're just never going to stop. Like, you don't perfect your marriage or how to raise your children. You're going to just keep getting better. Racism is the only sin that we think we have, only have to preach about it once, and I did the race talk, and my congregation is fixed. 
Well, no, if racism is like any other sin, it recurs. And so it has to become a regular part of discipleship. How can we consistently ask ourselves, how do we treat our brothers and sisters who are different from us? And so just making it a normal part of preaching and teaching instead of a, like, this is the race talk. I mean, that's what, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's what it means to be a Christian. Now, as far as signs of hope, I just don't, like, I, when I ask the question about theological questions in the right order, my hope is, is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection just changes my plausibility structure. So without the resurrection, there isn't a lot of hope. Once you believe the dead people get up from the grave, nothing becomes impossible. <laughs> and so sometimes the evidence for my hope isn't um, always great. And, and I always get this wrong. I should remember this. But I think it's like, maybe it's Dred Scott. I forget which. Plessy versus, I forget one. It's one of these cases. And I'll remember it after I get off the stage. I forget about it every time I talk about it. But 1861 or 1857, um, there's this court case. And it was around like um, the Fugitive Slave Law. And the, the, the court case said, there is no, the decision, there is no right that the black man has to which the white man is obligated to obey. Plessy. That was 1857 or 61? Dred Scott. It was one of those two. 1857, it was Dred Scott. It was Dred Scott. 1857. So in 1857, the abolitionist movement seemed to have come to its conclusion. They had lost, utterly lost. And there was no way forward. Within a decade, the Civil War had been fought and slavery would be outlawed. So what do you do if you're a Christian and it's Dred Scott decision that's been passed in 1857 and there doesn't seem to be any way forward? There's literally no way forward. You, they kept fighting because they knew the truth of the thing. And so there was no sign that they could have looked for after Dred Scott to say, here's a sign of hope. It was like an utter defeat. Um, but I think they kept going because they believed in the God, that the cause is righteous. And so I think that if we look at society, there's moments that are hopeful and moments that are not hopeful. But my, my hope is ultimately in the truth of the thing. Right? And I don't believe in like love wins in some kind of like cheesy, like love gets stepped on all of the time. Sometimes you shoot your shot and she don't like you. Love just lost, right? <laughs> you need to give up and move on. But, but love... Love is victorious in the person of Jesus. And if what he says is true, then I can follow him even when the evidence doesn't show me that. And so that's kind of how I try to, I have hope because I'm a Christian, not because of what I see in society, because that just comes up and down. Um, is there anything that I see in society right now that gets, no. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> and I think it's, and I, I'm like, I'm serious. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. Um, if you had talked to me in 2014 or 2013, I would have thought much different. Um, and so I, 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 don't, I don't know, I'm trying to, no, I don't see, I mean like, it, there is no one place where all the hope is to be found. In, in society, this group has this part right, this group has this part right. So I don't feel like there's a political or cultural path where these sets of things happen, things are gonna be fine. Christians are gonna be faced with a, a, a multitude of complicated cultural and political and social and moral questions that are gonna press us to be um, rigorously faithful to Jesus when every temptation is gonna be for us to compromise. Final question before we throw it open to the folks here. 
Jesus builds his church. Yeah. And the risen Jesus builds his church. How has he been building his church through these tragic circumstances the last couple of years? Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that I have seen is, and maybe this will be the hopeful part, are like the churches that have survived the aftertimes. I feel like the last five years have shattered the idea of a utopia, that we're all going to get there together. Um, and that like the church is going to be unified and everything's going to be great. We're divided. But in the midst of that division, I've seen people who have faithfully um, stuck to the word of God and reached out in, in, in different ways to, to grow in issues of racial injustice. And some of those churches give me hope. And so there are tons of churches that I think, you know, this thing may burn to the ground, but y'all might be all right. <laughs> Um, and, 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 here, and, here, and, here, and here is something that I, and maybe I'll put it this way. I always thought that like Christians need a theology of losing. And what I mean by that is that we think that like the victory is always like the thing. But sometimes like what if, what if like what if people said, you know what happened in the year of our Lord 2023 and following? Every church in America became uncomfortable for racists. And maybe churches shrunk and churches closed. And they look back 50, why did 200 churches close in America in the year of our Lord, 2023? Because they all were faithful to Jesus vis-a-vis race and justice. People look back and say, that's amazing. Because there are tons of people who we look back upon now and say, I'm glad that they were faithful even if they didn't see victory. And I feel like we think that the only victory is somehow it survives. But sometimes you have to be faithful like to like the end and every single church like I'm like I'm no one ever invites me as a church growth consultant that's not my my skill set I can show you how to close your church <laughs> so not, not in this, and, and what I'm saying by that is what if we were just marked by faithfulness and I think if we're marked by faithfulness in the long run I think that we will grow but in the short run we're going to shrink because I think that what we did before this was pragmatics. And pragmatics allowed us to grow really rapidly, but then we couldn't handle suffering, and now we're dealing with the, the long-term implications of pragmatics. Had we not been pragmatic 50 years ago, this wouldn't have caught us off guard. And so now we have to have a generation that has to suffer, has to deal with like loss of whatever, so that when the next wave comes, that comes to us, we'll always be there. And I think there have been churches that have done that, that have kind of decided they're going to be this kind of church, had dealt with the brushback, and are now starting to grow again on the other side of it. And that's what gives me hope, is that like God, God is faithful. And we really think that what we have to offer are our techniques. And what we actually have to offer to people is the resurrection. And if the resurrection is true, it's the best news ever. And what's happening now is I think that the divisions in our culture are forcing us to rely upon the resurrected Jesus and not any strategy. And that's what gives me hope. Mm. Amazing, yes, thank you. So we're gonna throw it open uh, to the floor here. So there's two types of questions. There's a question which is short and pithy and straight to the point. 
And then there's a question which is kind of your own statement and your own kind of monologue without a question. So I'm going to actually ask for the former, not the latter. And I had to go on an airplane in about 15 minutes. Yeah. So you got to, the questions have to be quick. Yeah, so quick. And if I leave afterwards, it's not because I don't want to talk. It's because so I don't want to get... quick, pithy questions. Unless you're going to put me in the Malibu for another day. That's a nice hotel. I'm going to have... Um... <laughs> okay, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, go. Yeah. yeah, and then also speak about women and the Bible since you mentioned basically misogyny. Yes. Your, your oh, man. Church and state and misogyny. Those are like, <laughs> you got to invite me back. So there is, um, I believe that, the, that, the, that the, Christ, the Christianity does better by persuasion than by the power of the state forcing people into what it means to be a Christian. I believe in a representative democracy, we try to persuade people that certain things that we want to have exist in the republic are good and people can vote their values. And so I don't believe in, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-separation of church and state. <laughs> it makes me, I'm an American. Now, as it relates to women in the Bible, that would be a long conversation. There's 15 different things that I could say. So I will say, this sounds weird, there's a video <laughs> like a five minute video on the Jude 3 project. They asked me this exact question and there's a, there's a clip of it. And if you can go hunt down the Jude 3 project and put Esau Makali women in the Bible, it'll pop up and you'll get, you'll get a, very, a very pithy um, five minute discussion on what I think about um, women. But I think the God values women, that he wants them preaching and teaching in his church and that we are better for it when that occurs. Amen, amen. The central like teaching of Christianity, one of the central teachings is, is anthropology, what Christians say about what a person is. And Christianity teaches that we're all made in the image of God. And that image of God is not hierarchical. There's not some people who bear more of the divine image, some people who have less, but they were all made in God's image. And that is something I try to teach my children, that God made, that God made them in his image and that he loves them as who they are. So their, their skin and their hair and their lips and all of those things aren't a mistake, but they're good. The other thing that I talk about is Christian eschatology. Um, how does the story end? And when you look at the end of the Christian story, he doesn't actually say difference goes away. But it says every tribe, tongue, and nation enters the kingdom of God. But here's the thing about language. This is very important about language. Language encodes culture. I speak English, obviously, but I have friends who are fluent in Spanish and Korean and other languages. And they often say, well, this language, this word in Korean or in Spanish doesn't translate fully into English. It's a phrase, but doesn't actually capture it, right? And so if it says that, that, that language exists forever, that different languages are coming into the kingdom of God, it means that cultures, because language is like, it's, it's the vehicle of culture, different cultures are coming into God's kingdom, which means that cultures are eschatological. Cultures will last forever. We don't get to heaven and the, the things that make us unique are washed away. We get, we get to heaven and things that make us unique are used to give glory to God. And so I tell my, I tell my, my children then, they don't have to shrink who they are to be a part of God's people. But God made them black on purpose and their blackness that lasts forever. Their blackness is eschatological. Their, their blackness will endure forever. Amen. 
And, and that they need to be them so they can probably give glory to God. So black culture redeemed is needed for the kingdom of God as is any other culture. And that's what I try to tell my children. Amen. Amen. Um, I think that, I mean, it's really hard because I don't know what's going on in people's individual families. And so I can't speak to like, there's a million things that someone could do wrong. Just like I could do a million things wrong as a parent. But I would say, uh, don't create an identity crisis for your children by forcing them to suppress their culture. Because if not, it's going to come up at some point. And so the students, the children who I know who had the most trouble adjusting is they felt like their parents didn't embrace them and didn't allow them to be who they were. And they had to leave their house before they, um, they were um, accepted. And so I would say giving them a real understanding of black culture and black history. Um, and I've also come to learn that that is re very regional. Um, like the black store in the south of the United States is not the same as the black store on the west coast um, or the Midwest and those other places. And so like really understanding like where they're from and how what God was doing through those people in that place. So for me, it's the civil rights movement and, you know, Montgomery bus boycott. That's like the south. And not the same in the Midwest, and it's not the same here on the West Coast. One of the things that I've noticed um, is even as a Southerner, how little I knew about what happened on the West Coast of the United States. Um, especially some of, this, this doesn't relate to black children, but like some of the um, anti-Asian immigration laws and the whole history of anti-Asian racism on the West Coast, I was completely unaware of as, as a Southerner. And so understanding some of those things and like how the history of a region is important, not just like a, a vague history of a race. What's happened to a people here to make them what they are? And the resistance to that, I think it's really important. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a good apologist in the sense of like, or an evangelist in that sense of like giving people techniques. But I really think that um, I, I want to say that like, and I don't want to feel like these questions aren't important, but I feel like Jesus is the main bit. And it's not that you never mention difficult things, but theological questions in the right order. And was the tomb empty? Mm -hmm. Like, Jesus is the question. Um, and, and this even, for me, when I was growing up, we, used to, we were taught like the old school version of evangelism. Maybe y'all still do this. Y'all know how you do on the West Coast. But you convince someone they're bad, and then you say, Jesus can fix you. Be and then, so the argument start was all about whether or not this person was actually bad. And that never got anywhere. And I said, okay, why don't I just tell you how good Jesus is? And once I tell you how good Jesus is, you can see by contrast that you're bad. In other words, like, <laughs> this is true. No, 
You all think I'm not talking about the Bible. Listen, this, this, is, this is in the Bible. Like, read Pentecost. Read the story of Pentecost. In the story of Pentecost, Peter tells the story of Jesus. You crucified him. He was raised from the dead. You know, death couldn't hold him. And then it says the people were cut to the heart from the proclamation of Jesus. Same thing happens on the boat. Peter sees the big miracle. He kind of goes, get away from me because I'm a sinful man. Most of us, when we hear the gospel, it happens to us intuitively. Someone's preaching about the cross, and you go, oh, that's true. I must have really needed God. In other words, the proclamation of the cross and Jesus' love for us reveals our need for him in the preaching of the thing. And so I'm not saying that solves every problem, but I try to get people to understand the good news. And then once you begin to understand the good news, you can ask yourself, um, Paul says he's, he's traded all things for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. And so I got to convince people that God is good before I say anything else about any other issue. And so I kind of lead with kind of the goodness of God and the difference he makes in my life and then go from there. Um, that's at least I'm not. But like I t- my, my Ph.D. is in Bible, not evangelistic methods. <laughs> and so um, it's not that's not that's not necessarily my skill set. OK, one more question. Over here. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think, I think I make. That's maybe I'll put it this way. That's my goal in life is to work hard at being myself. And when I say being myself, that that's a tricky thing to say in this culture. When I say being myself, I mean being myself as God has called me to be through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Not just like, I didn't go out into the, like, and I didn't search deep inside and find some identity that I didn't manifest. I feel like God has given me, he's made me who I was intended to be from when he made me. And one of the things that happens is there's a ton of benefits that can accrue to you for not being yourself. Society, culture, churches can subtly convince you to compromise on who you are. And part of what I try to do is to be myself so that I give other young black boys and girls permission to be themselves. Because I remember when I was like sitting in the audience and they would bring in somebody to speak and I hoped that they would tell the truth because I didn't have the microphone. I said, but I want someone to say it how it actually occurred. And so it's incumbent upon me as a Christian to say, now that I do have this microphone, if someone takes it from me, it's my job to tell the truth. 
It's my job to be myself. Because if I succeed by being someone else, and someone else is going to say, well, this is like, there's a way, you know, like, if they see compromise as the way to success, then they can't imagine Christian faithfulness. And so I try to be myself as black and as Christian, unapologetically both, precisely so that people can imagine that for themselves. And I think that the, I think what the church, it, it, maybe I'll say this about churches. Churches oftentimes say, we're looking for the black person who's the right fit. But it's precisely the thing that makes them fit in that it's unappealing to other black people. And so I have to be me so that I can actually appeal to the people who you want to reach. And so that sense of authenticity is what's required. In my book, um, and some, like the parts of my book that are, the, or even my writing, that are the most pointed, they're pointed for a reason. My actual natural inclination is not combative. And you can probably tell I'm not a combative person by nature. But I know that someone who reads what I write has experienced things. And if I don't tell it the way that it occurs, they're going to say, nah, he's not real. So I have to say precisely the problem as it occurs so that when I posit Jesus as the solution, Jesus is the solution to the problem that they're actually experiencing. Not a softened, like, um, like um, watered down version, but no, Jesus is the problem to the actual racism that you experience. And so I got to tell it the way that it occurs so that people find their hope there. And too often people try to lower the problem so there's less work for God to do. So we can say racism is not so bad that Jesus only needs to do so much work to fix it, right? So no, 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 it's precisely as bad as you think it is, and God is precisely that powerful. And so I wish that I could tell you like how to do it, other than to feel that conviction that um, if we don't do it, if we're not ourselves, then we can't, we can't be of any use to anyone. And despite all the benefits that accrue to you for not being yourself, do not do it. Remain who God calls you to be. Thank you. Okay. Just before we close, um, just hold on for two seconds. We're going to give you a massive thank you. Where's Mandy? Is Mandy here? She's over there. Come on up, Mandy. Um, so we're going to do two things. Okay. Well, three things. I'm going to ask you to do one thing. Okay. So they're going to pray. I'm going to ask him to pray for us. And then we're going to just give them a massive thank you. And then we're going to let them leave without talking to them because they, pl- <laughs> they have a plane to catch. And I know you all want to give your personal pr- appreciation, but we're going to do that collectively. Okay, so let's stand. Uh, Esau, Mandy, thank you so much for coming. Um, let's give them a massive cheer now. Why don't we? I've got two questions. Will you pray for us and will you come back again? <laughs> yes and yes. All right, okay. good. Okay, pray. Why don't we pray? Okay. Father, we thank you so much for um, this church. And I want to pray that you would bless not just this congregation, but their church plants and all the work that they're doing in and around this area. Make this place um, a beacon of light where people come and they're transformed by your word. And they give them permission to be the people who God has called them to be. I pray that you will bless the leaders, the staff, um, the volunteers, everyone who goes, um, who gives their life 
to this place. I know the ministry is hard in this season that many um, pastors ha have left. And I want to thank you for the fact that some have been faithful and persisted. And so give them seasons refreshing, give them energy, give them focus, bless their retreat that's coming up, um, bless the work that they do, and, and make this place, um, like I said, a place where people come and they're transformed spiritually and emotionally and they're made into the kingdom of God. It consists of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We love you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Okay, we're going to let them leave to the airport. So bless you guys. Thank you so much for coming for lunch, everyone. Have a great day.